Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Michelle Seller-Tucker. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Seller-Tucker Incorporated. She holds the Mergers and Acquisitions Master Intermediary title, as well as Certified Mergers and Acquisitions Professional and Certified Senior Business Analyst. Michelle also owns many other businesses in several different industries. As a 20-year veteran in the M&A industry, she is regarded as the leading authority on buying, selling, fixing, and growing businesses. Her and her firm have sold over a thousand businesses in almost every vertical. Michelle, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's topic, which focuses on your expertise, buying and selling businesses, and your new book, Exit Rich. I love this topic, and there's a lot for us to discuss, so let's get started. All right, let's jump in it. So first, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm Michelle Seller-Tucker, Marshall's Acquisitions Master Intermediary. Senior business analyst, certified mergers and acquisitions professional, and a bunch of other acronyms behind my name. <laughs> uh, international speaker, best-selling author. How did I get into this? That's the interesting question. You know, I didn't wake up one day and say, "Oh, I'm gonna, going to sell businesses," but I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I always knew that I wanted to be my own boss. So I've owned many different businesses in different verticals. I did go to work for Corporate America for a Fortune 500 a company named Xerox. Xerox actually recruited me. And um, within six months, they promoted me to regional vice president overseeing 100 salespeople. And I realized very quickly that I don't want to be in corporate America. And I certainly don't want to be in management in corporate America because you can't get anything done. It takes forever to, to make decisions. So I ended up transitioning out of Xerox and starting my franchise sales development and consulting company. I was a um, partner, equity partner in different franchisors business, but I had so many buyers that kept coming to me and asking me for existing businesses, existing businesses to roll up into their current portfolio, plus um, new buyers leaving corporate America and wanting to buy a business. And I kept saying, no, 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 because we only had startup franchises. And then finally, I'm like, why am I saying no? I should be saying yes. And really, that's what led me into mergers and acquisitions and led me into led me um, into starting my own firm so that I could say, yes, we got existing businesses. And that was nearly over 20 years ago, a thousand transactions later. And here we are. I did learn a long time ago, though, that can't just sell businesses. You know, according to Steve Forbes, 80% of companies will never sell. 80%. That should really be a wake-up call for most business owners because you have a less than a 20% chance of success of selling your company. So I learned a long time ago, I have to fix businesses. I have to grow them. I have to put them on a build-to-sell model in which to be successful. So we really specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing businesses. I do partner with business owners investing my capital, core competencies, resources, and put them on a, a fixer business, grow other business, put them on a build to sell program. We buy businesses and flip them. And of course we sell emerge companies and we have about 98% closing ratio on all offers we write. 
Plus, on average, we we are able to obtain a 20 to 40% higher selling price for our clients. Have so an, that's how I got into it, Megan. <laughs> yeah, you have an amazing background and it's obvious that you're passionate about what you do. Who is your ideal client? Well, you know, that's a difficult question to answer only because there's so many different things that we do. As far as selling businesses, my sweet spot is we work with clients $10 million and up and typically an EBIT of over a million dollars. EBIT is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. However, my firm does work with smaller type businesses. As far as partnering with business owners, my ideal client, there's a checklist that I have. <laughs> it has a lot to do with who am I partnering with? I mean, a partnership is kind of like a marriage. You, you wanna make sure it's, it's gonna be a good fit. So I have a, a, a criteria checklist that I go through before I partner with someone. And as you look back at your career, are there any particular stories or moves that really stand out in your mind as turning points? Yes. I think the biggest turning point for me is, you know, I've never had a mentor and I strongly encourage everyone to get a mentor early on, but I've never had a mentor until 2011, 2012. And that really started changing things for me as far as not the way I do business and not from a business standpoint, but from a marketing standpoint, getting out there, speaking, writing a book. I wrote my very first book in 2013 called Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth. And the reason that that was so insurmountable in my growth was because mergers and acquisitions, selling companies is kind of the best kept secret. We do a great job for our clients, but they don't go publicize it because they don't want people to know they sold their business. Buyers don't want to publicize it. A lot of times there's seller financing involved, there's earnouts involved, there's all different types of caveats where they want to keep the sell of the business confidential. So nobody really knew who I was and what I what I do. And I've had so many success stories but nobody knew about it. So I think when I finally hired a mentor, when I finally you know, started speaking on stage, when I wrote my very first book, things changed dramatically. It was a huge lead generation. It was credibility. It was so much more exposure than what I was getting. And, you know, that was, that was a huge turning point for us. Yeah. I'm, I imagine as an entrepreneur, it's very important to put yourself out there. It is. And when you're in an industry where you don't really have the bragging rights because we're selling private businesses and everything's kept confidential, it's very difficult to get yourself out there and tell the story of the businesses that you've sold. So writing my very first book and utilizing case studies and things of that nature made a huge difference in us getting new clients and, you know, really getting the word out there. And being able to educate more business owners about the business sales climate and, and the statistics and, and really educate them on how to sell your business, how to fix your business, how to grow your business, how to build it from the end in mind, like the GPS exit model and how to build the infrastructure on a six piece. And Exit Rich is your second book on selling businesses. So what inspired you to, to write this book? So it's actually my third book. Okay. Um, but, well, you are correct, though. It is the second book out. I wrote the um, actual second book on acquisitions 
about two years after I wrote Sell Your Business, but I haven't publicized that one yet. That's probably going to be the next one I'm going to come out with. The reason I wrote Exit Rich is because when I wrote Sell Your Business from one and fourth in 2013, I started noticing that the business landscape was changing. I sell businesses all over the United States and in other countries, and I would be in Dallas selling a business, and I would drive by a strip center and notice, gosh, this strip center is almost empty. I would notice that businesses are going out of business so much more often than they were before. So I did the research and learned, you know, when I, so when I wrote Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth in 2013, I did the research and learned that 90% of all startups within that first one to five years are at great risk of going out of business. And when I did research for Exit Rich, I learned that the business landscape has flip-flopped dramatically. I was actually flabbergasted to learn that it switched. Now it's only 30% of startups are at great risk. However, out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses have been in business 70, 10 years or longer, 70% of them will go out of business. 70%. So remember when I said I drove past uh, strip centers and noticed that these businesses were going out of business? My instincts were right. And we hear about the big public companies all the time because the media talks about Toys R Us in business 75 years goes out of business. Pier One, Kmart, Steinmart, because I have a chocolate closing down 1,500 locations. Disney stores going out of business. But what the media doesn't talk about are the private companies on every street corner in every town and every state across our great nation These businesses are exiting poor, selling for pennies on the dollar, closing their business, or even worse, filing bankruptcy. So that's why I wrote Exit Rich, because the business landscape has changed. And by the way, Megan, this is before the pandemic. Yeah, I was going to ask how that's changed things. This is before the pandemic. So Exit Rich, so Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth was my very first book and kind of a, you know, step-by-step how to sell your business. The big difference between sell your business for more than it's worth and exit rich is exit rich is not just about how to sell your business because most businesses are not sellable. 80% of businesses will never sell. So exit rich is all about building a business that's sustainable, that is scalable. And when you're ready to sell, you actually have a sellable asset. It is the how-to guide on building a sustainable, scalable business So you will be part of the 20% of companies that sell. That's the big difference between the two books. Sounds like every business owner out there should be reading this book. Not only business owner, but I've also been told every business owner, every entrepreneur, everyone thinking about buying or starting a business, you know, even uh, management should be reading this book because it's all about building a solid foundation, the infrastructure of your company. Even if you don't ever plan to sell, you want a business that's sustainable, scalable, a business that can run without you because the more you can build this business with this infrastructure, the more profitable it's going to be. And talk to us about the different types of businesses and, and why it's important to know which type of business you own. Sure. And I'll also direct your listeners to go to SolidTuckerAcademy.com. SolidTuckerAcademy.com. There is a quiz titled, What Type of Business Do I Own? And so there's several, I think there's seven different types of businesses I, I um, discuss in, in my book. But one of them is what I call the dreamer business. And the dreamer business, do you remember the movie? Are you young enough, Megan? <laughs> 
So remember the movie, The Field of Dreams? Field of Dreams? Yes, I do remember that one. So remember, build it and it will come? Yep, I definitely remember that. So a lot of a lot of people, and I don't really call them entrepreneurs, and I, I'm, I'm not wanting to offend anybody. So a lot of people leave corporate America and are like, I want to own my own business. They have this huge dream of owning their own business, but they've never been in business before. And they're probably not really an entrepreneur. They just want to own their own business. So they're like, if I build it, people will come. But the problem is they don't have something unique. They don't have a unique idea. They're building another ice cream store when there's already five ice cream stores in the block. Another coffee shop when there's already 20 in, the, in, in one mile. Another restaurant when you know it's overly saturated with restaurants. They don't have a unique concept. So, but this is their dream, Megan. <laughs> this is their dream. <laughs> so they build it. They build a business. They don't do much due diligence. They don't really research the area to know how many other restaurants, how many other coffee shops, how many other dry cleaners. They don't really do due diligence on the demographics to make sure it's going to support their business. And most of them never go into business with enough working capital. You know, I read an article one time that said, oh, so many startups are going out of business because they don't have a good business plan. You can have the best business plan in the world and go out of business. You don't go out of business because you don't have a good business plan. You go out of business because you lose, you run out of money. (laughs) (laughs) So they don't have enough working capital. And the bigger problem too, with the dreamer type mentality is they open up a restaurant and then everybody on that block is like, yay, let's go try out the new restaurant, right? Because everybody wants to try new things. They go to the new restaurant, the restaurant's just open. They're not an entrepreneur, so they don't know about building a solid infrastructure on the six Ps. So, yes, they may have people, but they're probably not trained properly. They have processes, but they really haven't been trained on and they haven't all been implemented. So they go to this new restaurant, they experience it, and they're like, the service is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they just open and their people aren't trained properly and the owner doesn't really have experience running a restaurant. So then they leave that restaurant and go, we're never going there again. And then they go on Facebook, they go on social media and they go to Yacht, wherever, and they make comments, don't try that new restaurant, it's terrible, right? Happens all the time. Yep. And then they go back to the restaurant they love. In the meantime, the restaurant that they love has lost revenue because they're losing patrons that want to go try out this dreamer's business. So they open a streamer business and it cannibalizes the other restaurants in the area. And then they'll end up closing in two to three years. Now that's the way it used to be. The reason why 30% of startups are not failing now, I mean, only 30% of startups are failing is because millennials and Gen Zs are really looking around the world and asking themselves, what are the problems? Let's solve the problems. And they're creating very unique businesses, solving problems. They're not creating another ice cream store, another restaurant. So that's the dreamer business. I'll kind of speed this up a little bit. But the other type of business is what I call the one man, one woman show, real estate agent, you know, real estate broker, real estate agent, maybe has one or two agents. Yeah. But most of the revenue is tied to the real estate broker or a hairdresser that has a salon but she's got 60, 70, 80, 90% of the clientele, a dentist, 
that ha- we have a dentist that wants to say, I've been in business 50 years, no other dentist. So that's a one woman, one man show business. Then you have the small businesses like coffee shops, ice cream stores of that nature. They're a thousand percent dependent upon the owner. They cannot run without the owner. And then you kind of move up to a little bit larger businesses that maybe have 25, 50 employees. They're still dependent upon the owner, but the owner doesn't have to be completely in the day to day. And then we move up to the middle market M&A businesses. Make sense? Yep. And you've probably already just touched on this, but what are the biggest mistakes that you see business owners making? Okay. There's a lot of them. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've seen them all. I have, but one of the, you know, the reason why 80% of businesses don't sell is because the biggest mistake is business owners never plan their exit. They never think about selling until a catastrophic event occurs, whether that's internal or external, internal or health issues, partners, disputes, divorce, death. External is this pandemic we, we have been in. You can't sell your business during a catastrophe and maximize value. It's not possible. You need to sell your business when your business is in its prime. So that's why most businesses are not sellable because business owners haven't planned for the sale of the business. They haven't built a business that buyers actually want to buy. Another big mistake is business owners have created a glorified job in which they go to work at every day versus a business that works for them. And the business is a thousand percent dependent upon them. This dentist been in business 50 years, one dentist, three dental hygienists, the three dental hygienists, Megan, are his daughters. (laughs) And I said, look, I can sell your business, but I can't maximize value because you and your daughters are the business and the purchase price is going to be contingent upon you and your daughter staying on for two to three years. And he said, well, honey, we're not staying. I said, well, then honey, you're not selling. Yep. <laughs> the other big mistake is business owners don't build a solid infrastructure and a solid foundation and their business doesn't run on all six cylinders, what I call all six P's. So let's talk a bit about the STGPS exit model. Can you start by just giving us an overview of what this is? Sure. So the GPS exit model is something I created years and years and years ago to try to get business owners to plan their exit from the beginning. It's like Stephen Covey says, start with the end of mind. So when you want to drive somewhere in Dallas, what do you do, Megan? You pull out your phone, you go to GPS, your Google Maps, I'm sorry, your Google Maps. And what's the first thing you plug in? The address or my endpoint. Yeah, your endpoint, your destination, right? Yep. Your destination. And what happens if you don't have a destination? I drive around for hours, <laughs> never exactly. reach anywhere. And that's what happens to, to business owners. They don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. They don't have a destination. So they're driving around in circles, driving up and down the financial hills to end up nowhere, to end up exiting poor to end up selling for pennies on a dollar. So the first step in a GPS exit model is your destination. Determine what your end game is, what your desired sales price is, what you want to sell your company for. Just pick a number, make it, everybody gets hung up on a number. And I'm always like, it's just a number guys that can be adjusted along the way. Let's say you want to sell your business for $10 million. Boom, we have a number, right? Yep. Now what's the second thing that a GPS, the GPS model needs to know? Does Google Maps needs to know next? Needs to know where you're starting from. Yep, true. What is your current <laughs> think location? Think about that one. What is your current location? It's not going to get you to where you want to go without knowing where you're starting from. 
So what is your current location? In other words, what is your current valuation? What is your business worth today? Now, most business owners have never had a business evaluation done on their company. That's financial suicide. Financial suicide. We go to the doctor once a year to get an annual checkup to make sure our heart's still ticking and we're still kicking. But yet we take our most valuable possession, which is our business, and we don't get an annual valuation checkup. That's financial suicide. You need to know what your business is worth every year, Megan, because there are events that increase valuation, there are events that decrease valuation. So you need an annual valuation checkup. So let's say you want to sell for 10 million, 5 million. What did I say? 5 million or 10 million? 10 million. Then let's say you're currently worth 2 million. The next step is time frame. Let's say you want to do this in 10 years. The very next step is who's your target buyers? Who are your buyers going to be? Who's your target buyers? Now I say buyers are not buyer. And the reason for that is because I have buyers that come to me all the time and say, Michelle, Michelle, I have the buyer. Can you represent me? And I'm like, not unless you let me market the business and bring backup buyers <laughs> because I have to come in and evaluate your business. Most businesses operate in three cylinders, not six. So I'm going to have to fix your business, tweak your business, help grow your business. I'm going to have to clean your financial house because in most cases it's a mess. I'm going to have to gather all the financial documents, create a data room, and put all your financial documents in a data room. And in all likelihood, the chances of your buyer closing on the sale of your business are slim to none. So you always want backup buyers, number one. Number two, how can we maximize value if we can't create a bidding war because we have no competition? So there's five types of buyers. This is all part of the GPS exit model. Okay. 90% of the buyers are first-time buyers. They buy dreamer businesses. They buy coffee shops, dry cleaners, things of that nature. They don't buy $10 million companies. Number two is turnaround specialists. They buy distressed assets. Number three is PEGs, private equity groups. They buy based two, two ways. They buy based on platforms and add-ons. Let's say that they want, let's say the private equity group wants to get into food manufacturing. They won't even consider a food manufacturing company unless it has at least $3 million in EBITDA, earnings, preferential taxes, depreciation, amortization. Let's say they're already in food manufacturing. You have a seasoning company. They'll look at your seasoning company, even if it's under a million dollars in EBITDA, because that's an add-on to their existing platform. Strategics competitors are the fourth type of buyers. They usually pay the highest multiple because they're buying synergies. They're buying synergies that will help catapult their business to the next level. And they will pay more because they're taking advantage of economies of scales, they're um, cutting infrastructure, which decreases overhead, and increases EBITDA. So usually a lot of times those are the best type of buyers for your business. The fifth type of buyers, what I call storm chasers, these are serial entrepreneurs and they're industry agnostic, they chase cash flow. So those are five types of buyers. Now that you have your plan, you need to reverse engineer it and ask yourself, okay, if, if I wanna sell for $10 million, where does my revenues need to be? My COGS, my operating expenses. Most importantly, where's my EBITDA need to land? If you want to sell for $2 million, you have to have an EBITDA between $1.5 and $2 million, depending upon your synergies. The next step is, what are the synergies, the characteristics that buyers are looking for? And how do I build my business to meet their specific criteria? It's kind of like, Megan, when somebody starts a business, like, here's my widget. Here's my ideal target market. And they build everything to meet the ideal target market's specific buying criteria. 
Your business is your widget. Your buyers are the buyers that you're building your business, your widget to meet their specific criteria. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And the very next step is my why. Why do you want to sell a business for $10 million? If it was easy, I think everybody would be doing it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth. So you have to have a powerful why to keep you in the game, to keep you motivated, to keep you weathering all the financial storms. That's the GPS exit model. So start with your end game in mind and work backwards from there. Yeah. Start with the end in mind and work backwards. And you talk a lot about the 6P method uh, to sell your business for huge profits. Can you tell us what the 6Ps are and, and why they're so important? Oh, Megan, I thought you would never ask. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. So the first P is people. And the reason I put people first is because it's the biggest problem in every organization. People is always the biggest problem. And a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, you know, they are the business. I just talked to a business owner today that wants to sell, they have an online education training company, no employees, no subcontractors, nothing. This one person and a partner, and they want to sell. The problem is the company is named after them. So they are the business. There is nothing to sell. Makes sense? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So people is number one. You don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. The problem with most entrepreneurs is we're control freaks. You know, most have the mentality that if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. So they have their finger in every pie. The problem with that scenario is they're working in the business, not on it. So they're not growing and the business is too dependent upon them. So entrepreneurs have to start focusing on their strengths, hiring their weaknesses, work on the business, not in it. Make sure you hire the right people and put them in the right seats. I've seen so many business owners that have great people, but they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and they have them in the wrong seats. And ask the who question, who opens the door, who handles customer service, marketing, legal, accounting, manufacturing, logistics, quality control, on and on and on and on. The clue here, Megan, is you should never be next to the who. You got to identify all the who's and you should never be next to who because we want to build a business that runs without you. That makes sense. Yeah. So the second P is, is product. Remember when I said 70% of businesses are going out of business? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't tell you why. The reason they're going out of business is because of lack of aim. A-I-M. Aim is always innovating market. Business owners stop innovating. They stop marketing. Look at Toys R Us. Do they do anything new in 75 years? Not too much. Blockbuster. Yep. Blockbuster never innovated. They saw Netflix, had an opportunity to purchase Netflix twice. They sat back and did nothing or out of business. So product is your product, your service, your industry. You have to ask yourself, are you on the way up or on the way out? Is your product or service or industry thriving or dying? And Do you have an Amazon? If you have an Amazon and you're in your prime, you should be selling your company. That's when you sell. You sell when you're in your prime. If you have a blockbuster and you're about to go out of business, doesn't mean you just got a business. It means you got to align yourself with a mentor, an expert, and you have to pivot. How do you know when you're in your prime? 
You know, that's a very good question. And that's like one of those crystal ball questions, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Um, Cause you, I, I know you're probably going to ask me about life cycle of a business, but businesses have life cycles just like humans do. And humans are born. We're an incubator, right? Ideals get born and they go into the incubator, right? Then they come out of the incubator. Only 5% of business ideas actually make it out of the incubator. Fortunately, many more humans make it out of the incubator. <laughs> Thank God. You want me to go ahead and go through the life cycle really quickly since you asked that question? Yeah, and then we'll get back to the six Ps. Okay. And so we get out of the incubator and then we go from an incubator to a newborn. What does a newborn need? Love, food, and safety. money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that all takes money, definitely. Money, money, money. They need money, 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 24 hours supervision, right? And a lot of love. Then they go from newborn and, and same thing. So a newborn baby needs 24 hour supervision, a lot of money, lots of love. Same thing with a business. Newborn business needs lots of money, lots of love, 24 hour supervision. Okay, then they go from a newborn to a toddler. Now, toddlers don't need as much attention as newborns do, but you can't take your eye off a toddler, can you? No, <laughs> <laughs> they still need lots of money and lots of supervision. Same thing with a, a taller business. Lots of supervision, lots of money. Then I go from taller to teenager. You have a couple of teenagers, right, Megan? They're close. Yep. They're close. Well, you, they might not need 24 hour supervision, but they still need a lot of supervision, right? Teenagers. And they still need a lot of money. They need more money. <laughs> <laughs> They need more money. And teenagers are extremely rebellious. They think they know it all. This teenage is true. business owners, teenage businesses think they know it all. Okay. They're very rebellious. They need a lot of supervision. They're reckless. Then you go from teenage business teenagers to young adults. Young adults are starting to figure it out. They don't obviously don't need near as much supervision. They don't need near as much money, but they still need some. You know, they're not completely independent. And then you go from young adult to adult. Adult is your prime, Megan. That's when you're in your prime. That's the best of the best. That's when you're on the highest mountain. That's when you're doing everything right. All the stores have aligned and everything is great. And I'll throw a Toys R Us example in here. 2015, Toys R Us did $11.5 billion in revenues. $11.5 billion in revenues. That's their prime. That's when they should have sold. And everybody's going to say, well, why? Maybe they should hang on. They should hang on. Really? Let's follow this. <laughs> Toys R Us in their prime, their adult phase. What's after adult? Uh, old age. <laughs> Senior citizen. Senior citizen. One year later, 2015, they're in their primes and $11.5 billion in revenue. One year later, 2015, they go to senior citizen and they file bankruptcy. They file bankruptcy one year later. That's crazy that it only took one year. One year. That's how quick it happens. That's how quick it can happen to any of us. And what's after senior citizen, Megan? Uh, I would guess death. Yes, you would be right. <laughs> Two years later, 2016. 2016, Toys R Us dies. They closed wow. 1,500 locations in 35 countries and they die. Not a slow death, it was a very quick death. So that, when you sell, you sell when you're in your prime. 
you how do you know when you're in your prime well when you start getting offers because your competitors start seeing that you're doing really really well strategists start coming after you you should be in line with an m a advisor early on you don't wait to engage an m a advisor to you one day you're like oh my god i'm getting a divorce i need to sell my company you need to plan your gps exit model in fact i challenge every one of your listeners to create your GPS exit model, align with an MA advisor like us and do that early on because we can help you see when you're in your prime. A lot of times, and, and the biggest mistake that business owners make is like, oh, we're doing so good. This is the cash cow. I'm keeping this. I'm keeping this. And then bam, something happens. Yeah. I imagine it's like gambling. It's hard to walk away when you're winning. I know, but wouldn't you rather walk away with millions? Definitely. All in your business? Then risk going, then risk, you know, losing all of that. You know, what goes up must come down. Things don't last forever. Things don't last forever. So back to, what was that product, right? Yep. You were on product. product. So if you're about to go bust, ask yourself these three transformational questions. Amazon did this back in the nineties. Ask yourself, what business are you at? Amazon did that. And they said, we're in a fulfillment business. We fulfill book orders. Second question. What's your core competency? What do you do better than everyone else? What is your USP, your unique selling proposition? Amazon said, oh, we do fulfillment better than everybody else. The third most obvious question, what business should I be in? What business should? Amazon said, we should be in a fulfillment business, fulfilling products for everyone all around the world. That question, those three questions transform Amazon from a small book fulfillment center to multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate that they are today. Amazon does not rest on its laurels. Amazon constantly innovates. One of the best mergers they ever made was buying Whole Foods, right? And now they bought MGM. So these three transformational questions are huge. Business owners have to get out of transactional and become transformational. And this is very hard to do on your own. You need a mentor. You need an outsider's opinion to help to walk you through this process. So that's product. Also, Megan, you're going to have multiple congruent revenue centers. One of the reasons that so many restaurants went out of business during the pandemic is because they have one way they get paid. Patrons coming in and eating or taking food to go. Where's your e-commerce business? Where's their, you know, selling merchandise, selling things that are unique to their specific restaurant? You got to have multiple congruent revenue centers. Make sense? Yes, it does. And then the second P, and Megan, did you ever watch a movie, The Founder, based upon the McDonald's story? McDonald Brothers? Never seen that one. Okay, everybody needs to go watch The Founder. (laughs) It is one of the best movies on business ever. It's about McDonald's restaurant, how the McDonald's started McDonald's in 1950 and Ray Kroc came in and they had one location. Ray Kroc came in and blew them up. Okay. Watch the movie. And then those questions, those transformational questions will make a lot more sense. Processes is the third P processes are extremely important and typically not thought of until something it's kind of like extra strategy. People don't think about exit strategy until something catastrophic happens. Same thing with processes. They're like, oh my God, this happened in my business. I need a process for that. No, you need a process before that happens. So processes should be designed from the beginning. 
but they're, they're forever ongoing processes are never over. You know, you keep your policy and procedure manuals open, you add, you add processes to that. You need SOP checklists and you need to be productive, efficient. And here's where most customers get this wrong. Most business owners get this wrong. You got to design your processes around your customer experience, not around your own agenda. Let me explain. Doctors, what time are their hours for patients? During work days. <laughs> During work days. <laughs> Monday through Friday, nine to five. And employees always have to ask their employer if they can have time off to go to the doctor, right? Yep. All doctors. And chiropractors are, are even have, have a more difficult schedule because they're usually, their hours are all over the place. They're closed, you know, for lunch, they're closed here, they're closed there. So doctors are not designing their processes around the patient's experience. They're designing it around their own agenda. McDonald's, and that's why I love the movie McDonald's, the founder, is they, back in 1950, there were no fast food restaurants. None. So the McDonald brothers said, we're going to start a fast food restaurant, fast food system, but we're going to design our processes around the customer's experience. What do we want the customer's experience? They said, we want them to experience great tasting food that's hot, fast, 30 seconds or less. That was in 1950. And even though the processes have been tweaked along the way, that is why you can eat at McDonald's anywhere in the world and get the same experience. Right? Yeah, McDonald's exactly done it right. Burger King, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, you know. So you got to ask yourself, what do we want our customers to experience? And better yet, ask your customers, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easier for you to do business with my company? Whoever makes it easiest for the consumer to purchase products and services is the company that's winning. Amazon is winning because you can practically buy a horse on Amazon and have it delivered in two days. <laughs> yeah, it's spoiled. It's spoiled us all. It has. It has changed. Amazon has changed the way that we purchase products. And this pandemic has changed it even more. So the next P is the highest value driver. This P will get you the highest multiple of EBITDA on the sale of your business. And this is called proprietary. I'm going to give you a quick crash course on valuations. Businesses other than SaaS. Now, let me repeat that because I don't want SaaS companies yelling at me. <laughs> other than SaaS businesses, software Companies trade of a multiple of EBITDA. SaaS companies trade of a multiple of revenues. So companies with over under a million dollars of EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization will typically trade for one to three and a half multiples, depending upon their synergies and depending upon their specific industry. Companies that have over a million dollars in EBITDA will typically, typically start at five and up, again, depending upon their synergies, their proprietary assets. Proprietary can take you from a five to seven to an eight to 10 multiple. Proprietary is the number one value driver of any of the P's other than profits. There's six pillars here. So this one takes me a little bit longer. And the last two are quick, Megan. Yeah, sure. So I'm interested to, to find out what proprietary is. So number one is branding. The more well-branded your company is, the more I can sell it for, as long as your brand is relevant in the mind of the consumers. Is anybody paying any money for Blockbuster? No. No. The most valuable brand in the world is? Netflix. No, oh. they're in the top 10. Amazon? Google? Nope, it's the other, it's the other A. 
Airbnb. <laughs> Apple. Apple, of course. How many apples do you have? I am looking at my <laughs> MacBook. I'm holding my iPhone. Yep. <laughs> and you didn't say Apple. <laughs> Apple's number one, $359 billion just for the brand. That doesn't include EBITDA or assets or inventory, real estate, AR, anything else that's just the brand. So build your brand. Number two is trademarks. Trademarking your company name, your slogans, your your podcast, you know, anything that's unique to you. You know, like I trademark the STGPS XML, the ST6Ps, products are huge. Here's a mistake, because I'm gonna I'm gonna read some of the top mistakes that business owners make into the six Ps. So I'll kill two bars of one stone here. One of the biggest mistakes that business owners make is a think of a company name or like, oh, I love this. I hope I can get the domain. I want the .com. So they'll go to GoDaddy, they'll type it in. They're like, yes, I got the .com. And they'll go to Texas and they'll get a state trademark, but they never check the federal database. So they're in business five, 10 years. All of a sudden receive a cease and desist letter. They, get, they have to stop using that company name. It's happened to me. I had the business doctor's um, website and I was marking a bunch of stuff under the business doctors and I received the letter. Wow. <laughs> now, luckily that wasn't my company. It was just a website I was using to do marketing, but I had to start that rebranding process all over again. Yeah, so blow. you must check that federal database and you must get a federal trademark on your podcast too, Megan. Because you don't want to spend all that time branding and they have to start back over. Plus, here's the other thing. People don't think about, business owners don't think about trademarking their products. We have a client that's got 12 different products. Each is exclusive to a different retail chain store. One's in Target, one's in Walmart, and a bunch of other national chains. They have a federal trademark in each one of their products. Synergistic buyers will pay a lot more money for that. You got to protect your IP. Same thing with patents. Protect your invention. You know, Shark Tank, all the sharks on Shark Tank always ask the same question. Do you have a patent on that? Do you have a patent pending? Do you have a utility patent? We um, sold a company for $18 million. Manufacturing company wasn't making that much money, but they had 18 patents. Also, Megan, make sure y'all have to keep your IP in a separate corporation. Do not have all your IP in one corporation. Big mistake. Second, contracts. So valuable. Manufacturing, vendor, distribution, franchise order has franchisees. The most valuable of all contracts, customer contracts, client contracts, especially with subscription models with reoccurring revenue, because buyers want to buy businesses that have, you know, reoccurring revenue coming in. Here's a mistake the business owners make with contracts. I've been doing this for 20 years, thousands of deals later, and I've never seen a business owner get this right. You need the two-sentence transferability clause that says this contract is transferable upon the new owner because 98% of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. And if your clients don't agree to consent to transfer, then your deal is going to fall dead in its tracks. Plus, if you have, we have a client that's got 2,000, we have a seller that's got 2,000 client contracts. They're not going to go to 2,000 clients and ask them all to sign consent to transfer. So you want to make sure you get that two-sentence transferability clause that says it's transferable upon a new entity. Databases are very valuable. You could be losing money and sell your business for millions, billions. You should also own your database in a separate corporation. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp. How much money was WhatsApp making? 
Zero. <laughs> None. Plus, they were hemorrhaging. I mean, they were bleeding. But they had a synergy that Facebook wanted. That's what we're talking about right now are synergies. They had a billion users. Businesses are evaluated. We evaluate businesses, not just on EBITDA. We evaluate businesses on these synergies. So Facebook paid $19 billion for a billion users because they knew they could monetize and ROI that investment. Celebrity endorsements are another big one. We have a client that's got products in front of Oprah that's endorsed by Oprah. Strategists will pay a lot of money for that because they want to get their products in front of the queen of everything. Yeah. So radio personalities is another big one. You know, we once had a skincare company that had all the top radio personalities and they owned all those time slots for their skincare products. Celebrity endorsements, radio personalities can only endorse one vertical at a time. Do you see Sidney Crawford endorsing any other furniture company? No, because they lose credibility. So these are what, this is what we call prime real estate. If you've got a company, like a, a skincare company, a diet company, something like that, and you've got a celebrity, a radio personality endorsing your product, that's prime real estate that strategics will pay a lot of money for. I could go on and on and on about proprietary content. You know, content is huge. Just make sure you own the content. A lot of times, Business owners will hire employees or hire interns. They'll go to Elance or something like that. But they never had them sign a contract that says you own, not them, you own that content. Very important. There's been lots of lawsuits over this. The next P, any questions about proprietary? No, makes sense. So and I the can next see why that's the most important one of the six. Yeah, well, it's, it's the highest valuable one for sure. You know, it's, it's the number one value driver. The reason why we're all in business is to make money. The reason I put profits last is because lack of profits is never the problem. It's always a symptom of. It's a symptom of not running on one of the other five Ps. Clients come to me all the time and say, I have a profits problem. I'm like, now you have a process problem. Now you have a people problem. Lack of profits are never the problem. It's a symptom of. So those are the six Ps. Yeah, well, I guess 20 years to put all of those together or? Yeah, it's been 20 years. But yeah, I mean, that's such that's such amazing advice. And I I, I don't think that most business owners are, are thinking of the majority of those. They're really not. Most business owners I have found are running off of about three Ps versus all six. And you can't help to be profitable if you're running all five cylinders. There's no way. It's, it's, it's almost foolproof. <laughs> and how do you create bidding wars amongst buyers? Well, that's exactly how we do it. So when we can get businesses over a million in EBITDA, there are more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to buy. There are 30.2 million businesses in the United States. There's a very small percentage of that 30.2 million businesses that actually have over a million dollars in EBITDA. There are private equity groups, strategists, competitors, serial entrepreneurs, all the three types of buyers we talked about the buying multi-million dollar companies, especially private equity groups. I mean, they've got money burning holes in their pocket. So they're looking for these businesses of over a million dollars in EBITDA. So when you have, when we find businesses over a million dollars in EBITDA that are running on all six cylinders, or we get them to run on all six cylinders because we have a built-to-sell program that helps get them there. When we get them there to run on all six cylinders 
and they have these patents and these trademarks and these databases and contracts, et cetera, that's how we're able to get a bidding war and get hundreds of buyers for that one business. Did I skip patrons? Did I skip the fifth P? Yeah, I think you did actually. Let me go back because I'm just thinking to myself, I think I skipped a P. <laughs> so let me go back to patrons real quick. Patrons is your customer base. Patrons are your clients. You know, without, without customers, you, you run out of gas, right? They're the fuel to your business. And most businesses run on the 80-20 rule where 80% of the revenues because we're 20% of their clients. So it's customer concentration versus customer diversification. So let me just give you a quick story to illustrate. And this will tell you how we create bidding wars. We had a oil manufacturing business that we appraised for $9.8 million. They had 70% of their revenues was tied up in the BP contract. That contract was not transferable by the way. And they wanted to sell. We, we had 550 buyers that looked at this business, we narrowed it down to 12 buyers to 12 letter of intents, but every single letter of intent had contingency language like clawback phases and earnouts and seller financing, et cetera, tied to keeping that BP contract. If they lost the BP contract, then they're gonna lose you know, a percentage of that purchase price. And I went back to the sellers and discussed it all. And they're like, Michelle, we're not doing that. We're not gonna agree to that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. Let me go find you the perfect buyer. <laughs> and I did. Luckily, I found that needle of a haystack buyer that was a strategic that had similar products and services. And they've been trying to get in BP for decades and could never get their foot in the door. So they said, look, we don't care about customer concentration. We just want to get our products in BP because this will help catapult our current business to the next level. And that's what strategics are looking for. So they said, we want to outbid everybody else. They gave me a bid at $15 million for 70% of the company. That's 129% more than the asking price. So that's how we create bidding wars. We're able to identify the synergies in the business, find the right type of buyers, synergistic buyers, who need that proprietary asset in which to help grow their current business to the next level. I imagine that's like finding a needle in a haystack every time you're looking for a strategic buyer. It really is. It really is. And that's why, you know, our job is so difficult. What we do is not easy. It really isn't. I mean, that's why our industry has about 98% failure rate. So finally, what are some of the key things that people should be looking for in an M&A advisor? Well, number one is experience. You want to make sure that your advisor has more than 10 years of experience. You know, under 10, they don't have that much experience. So more than 10 years of experience. You want to make sure that they, they can be industry agnostic. They don't have to be specialist. It really is not that important to be specialist. It is important to have experience and have so many different businesses, you know? So you want to know how much experience do you have? Don't choose anybody that has less than 10 years. I wouldn't choose anybody that's so less than 100 or 200 businesses. And you want to make sure that, that you want to ask them questions like, how do you evaluate businesses? How do you evaluate synergies? Ask them how many types of buyers there are. Do you know that most m advisors don't even know that? <laughs> <laughs> and you want to ask them, do you have any business owner experience yourself? I mean, have you ever been a business owner? 
because that makes a huge difference. Now I'm on multiple companies. I own multiple companies now. It makes a huge difference when your advisors owned different businesses because it gives them a whole level of expertise that other advisors don't have and empathy that other buyers advisors don't have. And you want to know about their database. How many buyers do you work with? How many buyers in your database? How many you know, businesses have you sold? How do you evaluate businesses? Have you ever created a bidding war? How do you how do you run your your auctions? You know, all those type of questions are, are very important. Now, it is good to get testimonials. Um, sometimes it's very difficult though, because we're selling mostly private businesses, and private businesses, private businesses are confidential. You know, so a lot of buyers and sellers don't want us to discuss anything about their transaction. But, you know, good advisors will have testimonials on their websites and things of that nature. Yeah, that sounds like um, great also advice. You, you want to ask them about, you know, do you have any experience with it? I, I can guarantee you most advisors know nothing about infrastructure to 6Ps or any of that stuff. Yeah, that sounds like great advice and uh, important questions to be asking yourself when considering mergers and acquisitions. Absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. I really appreciate you sharing your vast knowledge. And for all of our listeners out there who are interested in, in obtaining a copy of your book, where, where can they find that? Sure. So I'll tell you a little bit about Exit Rich, if that's okay. Sure. Exit Rich was endorsed by Steve Forbes. Steve Forbes says Exit Rich is a goldmine for entrepreneurs as they leave way too much money on the table to sell up their business. Sharon Lecter, have you heard of Sharon Lecter? Yeah. She's my co-author. She wrote Rich Job Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki. Yep. She's a CPA, financial literacy expert, and the advisor to different presidents. She writes the mentor's corner after each chapter. Kevin Harrington, original shark on Shark Tank, what the intro. Plus, we have testimonies from Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen for Chicken Soup from the Soul, Les Brown, Brad Sugars from Action Coach, and many more. Also, Exit Rich is an Inc. original and a Wall Street bestseller, USA Today bestseller, um, and a bunch of other titles. So Exit Rich launched June 22nd, but you can still go to ExitRichBook.com. But $24.79 plus shipping, you can purchase your copy today. We'll email you the digital download. We'll ship the hardcover to your doorstep. We'll give you a lifetime membership into the Extra Rich Book Club, where there's video content of me doing deep dives in these different techniques and strategies that I've been teaching for the last 20 years in the field. Plus documents, documents to operate your business and sell your business. Sample SOP checklist, employee handbooks, a policy and procedure manuals. Sample letter of intents, purchase agreements, due diligence checklist, and closing documents. And Megan, this is a tremendous value because all these documents to operate and sell your business are there for your review and your download, and it would cost you over $50,000 if you want to go recreate them all. I know because I spent the money. <laughs> Plus, we'll give you a 30-day free membership and to Club CEOs, which is an entrepreneurship mastermind where we ask those transformational questions and help business owners build a sustainable, scalable, and when you're ready, sellable business. And that's all at exitrichbook.com. And my main website is silotucker.com. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing investment for $28. $24.79 oh, plus shipping. So yeah, you're right at 30 oh, bucks. Well, yeah. 
<laughs> so amazing. I mean, you know, less than dinner sometimes. Yeah, le- less than dinner at McDonald's for a family. <laughs> <laughs> so go get your copy today at exitrichbook.com. Yep. To all of our listeners today, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. Take care of yourself until next week when we speak again. Thank you. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.